Welcome to CA Today. I'm your host, Brendan Kaiser, and today I'm coming to you on location. I'm in Olean at Good Times, and we just had a wonderful time. That joke will never get old. Sorry. Uh, we had a good time, a wonderful time, a wonderful time, a good time. You know, I, I just keep expanding the adjectives there. But uh, no, we had a fantastic, there you go, fantastic day of learning um, here with our pre-K to second grade teachers, all learning from the one, the only, Lisa Murphy. Lisa, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we are, uh, first of all, I have to say thank you for taking the time and being gracious with your time. For those of you that don't know, Lisa just powered through a six-hour presentation, talked to people afterwards. There was a line to see her, and now you're sitting down with me, and uh, I'm grateful. So thanks. You're more than welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So my background, middle school, high school, you know, my head is currently spinning. My colleague said to me, you know, so what'd you think of, you know, Lisa's presentation? And I just was like, a whole new world. <laughs> like, I was, you know, you blew my mind on some things. And I'll be honest, like some of this stuff, like I believe in the importance of play. I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I'm all about, you know, fostering that imagination and facilitating their play experiences. Um, so I guess just to kind of like dive in with this, on your handouts for all of us, I see this quote by John Dewey. It's <laughs> everywhere. The problem with traditional schools is not in the absence of experiences, but in the fact the wrong ones are provided. As a lead-in, I guess, you know, why is that everywhere? Um, on my handouts, you mean. So, yes. so a couple things that I'll say before I answer your question is every year in December, I edit, update all of my handouts for all of the workshops, and I put a new quote in every year. And one of them I do, I do it mostly because I think it's a way of, keeping conversations going but also it's my way of knowing who actually read it's like the writer it's like when I say I need blue M&Ms you know it's it's yeah. not because I care about blue m and I just want to see who read the writer of what I'm needing that day so in that particular one caught me I'm a big fan of Dewey always have been uh, John Dewey who is probably one of the most influential um, philosophers when it comes to American uh, um, elementary school education okay so Piaget would be more for early childhood but but Dewey is definitely uh elementary school so there are tons of experiences you could walk through any school all day and see lots of experiences happening um a lot of them though are not developmentally appropriate a lot of them are not aligned with the age and stage of the children who might be in that particular room they might be very adult driven experiences an adult agenda perhaps um, something that could be very much over kids heads something that could be very much underneath them and the kids are are ready for more and so the uh, he uses the word that the wrong ones are being provided after going through today and using today's lens of developmentally appropriate practice, I would say that that's more of what it is. There's tons of experiences, you know, but a worksheet is n not a developmentally appropriate experience. And somebody says, oh, but they're coloring a worksheet. Yeah, but it's still a worksheet. You know, so what right. is the intention behind this particular one? And is there a way to make the experiences more developmentally appropriate? And then I would, of course, add or, you know, have them be grounded in, in play. Mm -hmm. And so, again, like I was thinking of so many questions while watching your presentation and just as you went through them, boom, answer after answers. But for our listeners who meaning, meaning that, that in the course of me continuing the presentation, I was answering the questions that were popping in your head? Is correct. That, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, psychic abilities or not, or just <laughs> we are in line, I don't know what it was. But um, 
but you provide a lot. But for our listeners who weren't here, okay, I don't want you to rehash everything, but I'm just kind of curious. Like, what what is that ideal classroom look like where play is the priority? It's at the forefront. Like, what in your experiences of being all over the world, what are you seeing when you walk in? Ideally, or what am I really seeing? Well, yeah. So, so I'm. <laughs> that's not- another. That's a whole other episode. Yeah. Um, I I was asked once on a television interview if you were to open up a, a school tomorrow, what is the one thing that would be in it? And I think the interviewer, through no, and this isn't a judgment, but I, I think they were expecting me to answer like blocks or easel, you know, or something a, a thing. And my answer to them was time because I think that is missing in a lot of our places. Um, again, we can, we can say that uh, New York State is now on the, on the trajectory of becoming more play-based in their expectations and or of what they're now wanting to be happening in the classrooms, but you still need time. And, and so I would say that that's what you need. I mean, I can, I can get very literal. I can tell you what I call them the bones of what should be evident in an early childhood environment. And for the listeners, just a reminder that early childhood is, by definition, birth until age eight. So whether you're in an infant room, a kindergarten classroom, a pre-K, a second grade, this still is all under the umbrella of early childhood. Blocks need to be there. Water play of some sort, sand, water, a sensory tub of some sort, books, um, we need to make sure that we have a dress-up area of some sort, math, manipulatives, some sort of maybe listening area where kids can, you know, put on some earphones and maybe listen to music or something like that, you know, or a book on tape. I know I'm dating myself, but, you know, th- those to me are the bones. And, and then, like, Play-Doh experiences, you, you, sensory experiences are happening on a regular basis. And then I think really that it's the teacher's job to be facilitating and allowing the kids to have deeper explorations within the materials that are set up in the space. And we did talk about that today. I mean, I believe that my job is a facilitator. I kind of broke up with considering myself a teacher a long time ago. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, that label. And you also talked about being the guide on the side. A lot. The guide on the side, not yeah. the sage on the stage. And, yeah. and, and I think when you first start teaching, you drink that Kool-Aid of thinking, you know, I'm the boss. I'm the teacher. One, two, three, eyes on me. And, and that goes back way to even concepts that Dewey and Piaget wanted teachers to break up with, which is what we call the, the mug-jug theory. Like, I'm the biggest one in the room. I got the big, you know, jug of information, and it's my job to pop your head off. And, and fill up your cups with all of this knowledge that I have. And we call that, you know, going into teacher mode, going into teacher mode. And that's why it's sometimes hard to break up with some of the things that we were taught because it's what we feel allows us, you know, to, it's, it's, it's using that master's degree, by golly. You know, I paid a lot of money for that piece of paper. I'm going to teach you. And, and I found that the shift of thinking of myself more as a facilitator was a lot more effective um, and a lot more in line with what I was saying that I wanted to be doing. And I also think for people who are claiming an allegiance to a play-based philosophy, being a facilitator I think is more accurate of what your role is in a, in a playful environment. Mm-hmm. And I got, you know, one thing, one, you told me stories today, one of them, you know, about the bird's nest, you know, yeah. the kid brings in the bird's nest, but the bird unit is until March. And, you know, I think for some teachers, that's a scary, like concept like because we don't know what it's gonna look like and 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 I think I think you'd know what to do because children are very good at at 
showing you the direction of where something needs to go. I think the skill, and it becomes easier as you get older and have more experiences, is being okay with you not knowing where it might go and not being afraid of where it might go. But being able to trust yourself that you can facilitate it and move them to, you know, through their thinking and, and guiding them along the way. So, so I, I can, I, sometimes stories I think are, are, are good. There's a, there's a book and it's called something about a broken wing. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I don't have it with me and I'm, I, I'm not remembering. Anyway, at the end of the day, the book, it's a beautiful book. I bought it at a conference because I was reading it there in the vendor hall and I'm crying my eyes out. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> we got to get this book. And, and the long and short of the book is that there, there's a bird and it was flying and it fell. And, and nobody saw the bird fall except a young boy named Will. So Will saw the bird fall. And as many stories go, he picked it up. He nursed it back to health. You're a part of this whole process through the course of the storybook. And then they release the bird. And the bird flies away. And as soon as I went back to school, I read this book to the children. I'm like, I got this new book. I was at a conference. Come if you want to listen. Let's sit down. As soon as I finished reading the book, no joke, a bird slammed into the window of the classroom. And I was like, oh, my gosh. The kids all jumped up. They ran over to the window. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm not going to lie to you, I was tired. I'm like, oh, that bird better be alive because I am not in a circle of life kind of mood today, right? The death I'm tired. lesson is in, you know, June. Right, no. exactly. Yeah. So this, this, this bird, well, the bird ended up flying away. And the kids all watched it go. As soon as the bird took off, all of the children in the room, threes, fours, and fives, it was a mixed age group, they came running over to me and they're like, Miss Lisa, Miss Lisa, how do you say stop, birdie, stop? We need to make a sign. And they ran to the writing area. They're grabbing markers, they're grabbing pens, they're making signs, they're making, you know, don't run into the bird. You know, you might die if you, I mean, it was beautiful. I kept all of these stories up, these warning signs up for the entire rest of the year. And, and my, my comment to that is, is that nobody knew where that was going to go. It wasn't on anybody's lesson plan. Instead of being threatened by the children, being now the directors of their own learning, of their own experience, I turned myself into a facilitator. And at the end of the day, everybody listening, everybody who was there today, if I told you to sit down and draw the four domains of developmentally appropriate practice, although what happened was not on a lesson plan, every single one of you listening could link that back to a deepening of cognitive development, language and literacy development, physical development, and social-emotional development. And I think probably lately, that's been one of my biggest jobs and goals at workshops, is to get people to start seeing that if you're leading with developmentally appropriate practice, it's hard to, it's hard to do what you know you probably shouldn't be doing. For right. example, a worksheet. Right, so would you say then that's the lens, like, you know, if, if what I wanna do in the classroom, if it hits these, Four areas. It's a go. It's a go. Yeah. It is a go. And and I would also, in my new book that's coming out probably June of 2019, we even talk about how it's okay if it doesn't meet all four of them. Because, you know, there's some things that are, you know, that are obviously going to be one or two, you know. And, and that's okay. To me, it's that are you as the person in the room, as the adult, as the teacher, are you able to see those connections? And then even more importantly, are you able to start pointing out those connections to developmentally appropriate practice that some people don't see on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of this, you know, ties into some summer work um, we did around trauma and fostering 
um, you know, trauma-sensitive environments and classrooms and schools. And just thinking about those needs too need to be met, especially for kids who have experienced trauma and you know those ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. So. Um, well, you still, again, DAP should never be compromised when I see DAP, yeah. you know, the idea of being developmentally appropriate in our practice. Um, and, and I think Maslow needs to be tossed back in. And we talked a little bit about that this morning. Um, for those of you listening, the, the triangle guy, that's how everybody knows him, Abraham Maslow, um, that the hierarchy of needs. And at the bottom of that triangle is your, your food and your shelter and clothing, knowing that your basic needs are being met. And as you work your way up, the very tip top of that triangle is, is self-actualization. And, and it's... I, I equate that to you know an awesome lesson plan or an amazing curriculum or really really well trained staff, which is all fine, well and good, but it doesn't matter if we're neglecting the relationship meeting the basic need component. So whether that basic need is something very serious as a child showing up having experienced a lot of trauma before, or if it's as very you know maybe not as traumatic, it's just that I didn't get breakfast today and I'm really kind of hungry. It doesn't matter. There's no problem envy. There's no one thing that's that's worse or overrides it. But it's just a reminder that if we're not paying attention to that, we're missing the whole focus of what I think good relationship building is about. Yeah, and the relationship piece is paramount, right? You talked about, like, you might not like every kid you have, but as a professional and as an adult, you need to have that ability to find that, Thread, I think you called the it. The thread of connection. Thread of connection. Yeah, you're not going to love every kid that walks in the door. And, and, and I, I, on purpose, will unpack that at every workshop because I think sometimes without thinking about it, we, we stumble into thinking that just because we like kids that somehow we're going to be good teachers. And that's a myth. Um, I think adults who work with kids, of course, need to respect children. Um, but I'll repeat what I said today. It's very, very fragile if you think you're good long term because you love kids because at the end of the day, and I say that a lot, we're people. And you're not going to have that instant connection with everybody that walks in the door, but you are an adult that's willing to stick around and find one, even if it takes you weeks or if it takes you months. And because the kids know you haven't given up on them and you're sticking with it, that is, that's why I think you're good long-term in this profession. Absolutely. Now, one thing I'm curious about is the kind of the evolution of play as we move through the grades. And you had talked about the, um, w which I had never heard before, and I'm, I'm fascinated to dive into this. You'll have to remind me of the researcher. In regards to, we know that kids are developmentally ready for uh, the academic learning piece be or beyond oh, just oh, play, oh, 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 when they like, can draw a diamond. Okay, okay. And, so right, yeah. right, right. So when you're ready for what we would maybe shorthand call formal instruction, um, Piaget re referred to it as, as concrete, like the concrete skills. Um, Waldorf said you're not ready for formal instruction. So it depends on the researcher. But it, the, the common denominator is that age of reason, which is around probably seven, eight, nine. So depending on whose book you read, right, some of them are talking about the big teeth. I mean, that's a big physical indicator that a kid has reached a certain area of development. So I'm painting a very general picture because there's always going to be extremes, right, on, on sure. either end. Um, but if, if a child has not yet reached that level, it doesn't matter what kind of expectations a district or a school or a teacher might have or even a parent might have of their child if they're not there developmentally you know, the, the example that I think it's kind of snarky, but it's true, it, it doesn't matter how many pencils the district bought, if the kid's fine motor skill development isn't on task, 
It doesn't matter how many pencils you have or how many expectations of how many letters you want that kid to write. They're not going to yet have the physical dexterity to hold that pencil. So yeah, the Eric Erickson was, not Eric Erickson, excuse me, um, David Elkind, Eric Erickson's also a theorist, but not who I'm talking about. David Elkind wrote a book called The Power of Play. And within that book, he kind of salt and peppers indicators that your child is ready for what might be expected of them, either concrete operations wise or formal instruction wise. And yes, one of them is knowing how to draw a diamond, being able, not even knowing how, but being actually physically able, um, reaching your hand over your head and touching your earlobe, your big teeth coming in, um, uh, being more attracted to stories with, with uh, multi-dimensional characters mm -hmm. and personalities are some of the indicators. So then would you say this is kind of the area where play starts to disappear? No, play, no. No, seriously, it sounds like a bumper sticker, but it's true. So th the, the way kids are playing, I think playful is sometimes easier for the adults to understand to make yeah. that transition. The, the need to play, the idea for play. In fact, actually, just the other day on Facebook, there was a bunch of memes, not even memes, um, pictures floating around of, um, and, and I don't know the context, but, but they were showing examples of kids in third and fourth grade building towers and using uh, like connects kind of, of toys and games and, and blocks. So I'm not sure the context, but it was really nice to see that, you know, now just because you're in fourth or fifth grade, the desire to be playful or to approach things with a playful lens, that does not ever go away. What I will say is that some of what we might I, um, identify as play, like playing with Play-Doh or painting pictures all day long or, or making a lots of blocks with the road and zooming cars around it. Some of those playful experiences that we might associate with twos, threes, fours, and fives. What I will say is that children who have had a play experience, they will evolve to the point where that foundation of play, as we talked about today, and as I talk about in my playbook, it's so strong that the next logical step, both development and just logically, is the building of that academic house where they're ready for more. They're ready for what comes next, which might still be done very playfully, but I used to say that I could walk into the pre-K classroom of the school I used to run, and I could tell you within two seconds who the new kids were. The new kids were the ones up to their eyeballs in oobleck, cornstarch and water, and, and they were painting still on their bodies. <laughs> they, you know, they were doing that kind of stuff yeah. for no reason other than they had not yet had the ability to do it. But the kids who had been in this program since they were six weeks old, it's not that they didn't want to do it anymore. They knew it was there if they wanted to, but they were ready to start building that academic mansion. Right. Does that does that make sense to you? Totally does. So that to me is that evolution. It's not that it ever the need for it ever goes away. It's that now that foundation of play is what's facilitating the building of that house. Right. And so we should still be seeing play in high school courses, right? And I mean, there are tons of different types of play and you know role play or even playfulness. I think yeah. playfulness. The the it, there are many types of play. Right. And 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 there's, you know, you, for kids who are involved in, involved in sports, you're going to see that kind of play for the kids in dance or drama or band. You're going to see that kind of play. But I also think for people who might not be in what what like some people would assume is like a playful situation. It's a playfulness. It's a playful spirit. Right. You can you, you can be engaged like like for some people painting a fence can be very, very playful. 
Right. They're in the zone. They're enjoying it. You know, they're doing, they're outside, whatever it is. So there's a playful spirit in which they approach that task. But three hours prior, they could have been playing, you know, an adult league softball game and been bored off their gourd, not enjoying themselves at all. So see something that stereotypically might be considered a playful event could be the most dull, dry, boring, not playful event at all. Mm -hmm. So do you degrees of playfulness? I think is what Peter Gray says. Sorry, I've interrupted. No, you're totally fine. Interrupt away. Um, So do you feel like educators then should be kind of identifying? kids favorite types of play like i like to play sports and like and trying Eh. to tap into that is that necessary i i I don't i don't know if i would say yes or no to that i don't think it's my job to to identify that i think as kids get older simply observing them is gonna let you know what their interests might be you know my definition of being playful is not everybody else's in the room yeah um I think providing opportunities for kids to experience things, you know, making yeah. making sure that being outside or playing s- not sports per se, but like having opportunity to like throw balls around, you know, and having equipment around for kids to use. I'm not a big fan of, you know, kids signing up to do stuff because I think that becomes very, very adult directed, um, you know, the, the, the kind of pick up basketball games we used to see out in the neighborhood is a lot more playful than what I see a lot of kids getting dragged around to, you know, extracurricularly on a, on a regular basis. Um, for more on that, read Peter Gray's book called Free to Learn. Okay. And so, and, you know, I was binging prior to you coming, you know, about, uh, you know, several of your podcast episodes. Um, and do you want to give it a shout out? Sure. Right now? Uh, yeah. I podcast with Jeff Johnson from Explorations Early Learning, and our podcast is available anywhere you would download one. It is free, and it's called Child Care Bar and Grill. And it's hysterical, and it's informative, and there's over 400 episodes. And I was just kind of flicking through with my finger, and wherever I landed, I said, all right, this topic kind of sounds cool. And and one of the episodes, I don't remember which one it was, um, but you talked about um, – or maybe you said someone shared with you that the importance of educators being defenders of choice. I don't know. If oh that yeah. That's true. one of my, fa- in fact, I was trying to see if that came up today and there was one point during the session where I thought maybe I was going to riff on that. Um, is uh and actually i just remembered where it was and (laughs) when i actually during the workshop not that the listeners care but in the workshop when that one lady over there was talking about how maybe kids don't know how to play anymore and i even said oh i just had an idea this was that idea yes there was a, a a woman in canada um who was a facilitator of the kinder chat um, podcast as well as the Kinder Chat. Uh, they, they tweet and do questions and answer sessions on Sunday nights. But she said, Lisa, at the end of the day, what I think all of us who talk about play and are defenders of play and are advocates of play, what we really mean is choice. And I sat on that because I think the woman is brilliant and, I was, and I've stole it completely from her. Um, and it, it's true. What I think we are guardians and protectors of is a child's ability to choose where they're going to be, how they're going to spend their time within the space. If we're thinking school with a school lens right Right. now, it's my job to set up the classroom and it's my job to facilitate their explorations within the space. By virtue of that, the child then gets to choose where they are. And in theory, it shouldn't matter where they choose to be or how long they choose to be there. Because I have set up the space 
with nothing but developmental intentionality. Um, Peter Gray has listed the five conditions of play, and condition number one is that it's freely chosen and you can quit when you're done. And most programs who even claim to be play-based when push comes to shove don't even pass the first condition of play, freely chosen. Yeah, right. You know, and yeah, and snack time, right? You know, okay, now it's time's up. Yeah, and let's stop move. what you're doing and yep. come over here. But I'm not yeah. done playing. Well, this is snack time, so you need to stop and come over. The minute we find ourselves yeah. getting into that kind of a routine or that habit, it's no longer play. If at morning meeting I have to tell you where I'm going to be and how long I'm going to stay there, okay, fine, maybe not the hill I'm going to die on, but if I start that play plan and I decide that I want to change, but somebody is now kind of bouncing me back, guardrailing me back, it's no longer play. I don't care what sign you have on the door. Mm -hmm. You're not, you're, that is not, you're, you're now no longer a play-based environment. Another thing that's been kind of twirling around in my head, and, and you touched on it several times today, uh, the role of technology, okay? And I'm just kind of curious, you know, as far as like play through iPads or play through laptops, are, are those still meeting our kids' needs? Well, back in, even in today's workshop, I'm going to repeat myself. I, I, I think we need to redefine technology, um, and I wrote an article, and I put it up. It's on my website, uigui.com, of, of redefining technology. If, if you really unpack the true definition of tech, of technology, it's something that's made your life a little easier um, or, or something that's taken away the, the burden of something or something that's gotten you to the end process maybe a little bit quicker than it used to. So by virtue of that definition, an egg beater could be considered technology. A washing machine, indoor plumbing is technology. So I think this conversation among educators, especially early childhood educators, it's more of a conversation about screen-based technology. And as I said in the workshop, I'm not a Luddite. I mean, you're sitting there with your laptop. I mean, I've got my phone here. I got my iPad in, in my briefcase. I, I'm not averse to those tools. I get very concerned when those tools become the experience instead of adding to the experience. I believe very strongly that if you don't have a sandbox, you don't need an iPad. And I will often remind, especially parent groups, lovingly that, that the tech that they're so excited about was invented and created by a group of people that grew up playing in the mud. Right, and so you have that same experience in a digital context, but what's being lost when you're not physically touching the sand you're and the dirt and the mud? You're losing all of the sensory. And the right. sound bite that we used to run the road saying is that children who are growing up in a very high tech world need a very high touch early childhood experience. One of my last questions for you is, I'm curious, with professional development, because we have administrators that listen to this and you know school leaders, teacher leaders, I'm curious, is there a role with play in professional development? Have you seen that? Or like with adult learning, you know, or is it, because a lot of times we see, you know, lectures and we see, you know, some group work and the PowerPoint. Have you ever seen a model of play with regards to adult learning? Well. 
so and and I asked you a little bit about this when when we ended it today was it, it's very rare that I'm I don't end up facilitating a hands-on component in a full day session like we like we did today and there and, and you know you had your reason and all valid as to why that wasn't a part um, of today so my my typical answer would be that you traditionally you know 90 minutes to two hours of the block of the day would have been the adults up moving around touching the stuff doing the science experiences so approaching that with a playful lens because a lot of times they haven't done that kind of hands-on stuff the tricky piece and I don't want to get over technical here but it's it's true we know that adult learners learn and assimilate information better when they get up and they move around. However, feedback that we get is that they hate doing it, right? So yeah. the minute a presenter says, everybody stand up and get a partner, uh, a third of the people yeah. in the room are like, I gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> and the law of thirds is very applicable here. So let me break this down because it fits everywhere. The law of thirds says that when it comes to absolutely anything, a third of the people in the room, whether they're adults or children, will get it right away. So for most of your listeners, a, a very general example that's going to resonate is cleaning up time. So at cleanup time during the course of the day or transition time, a third of the kids in your class get it right away. Whether you flick the lights, ring the bell, whatever it is that you do, they get it. And you like those kids because they're they're not making it any harder. That's a third. The middle third gets it by June, right? So June rolls around and they're like, oh, that's the cleanup music. And you're like, it has been since August, okay? So the idea is that they get it eventually. And the other third, and I know it's been a long day, but they're the, they never get it, right? Obvious, they get it right away, they get it eventually, or they never get it. And the same is true with adult learners. So you say, get up, when everybody get a partner. A third of the people are like, yay, I love this. And another third is like, oh man, I, oh God, you know, fine, I'll do it with you because I like you, you're my friend. And the other third, they leave the room. And so one of the ways that I've, I mean, because I've struggled with this, because we know this is how you assimilate stuff mm -hmm. and start and start internalizing it, but the feedback is just consistently like, don't do it, don't do it. So the way I've, I've compensated for it is I've started to make breaks a little longer breaks a little bit more frequently and I've started to extend the lunch break and if I'm not able to actually physically like make it a longer time frame I will potentially give questions or suggestions to keep the conversation going to kind of assist in you know the, the processing of the information um, so I, I also think using humor is a way of infusing the play and, and having them you know laugh and enjoy themselves you know it's not yeah, playfulness one, playfulness right yeah. it's a playful spirit I try to bring through through the course of the day I mean it's not one or the other so I even as adult learners if we're out there saying you know our district wants us to be more playful in how we're teaching but our presentations and our PD is not in line with that I, I don't see any reason why what I do with the kids should be any different than what I do with the adults, right? Yeah. If we're really saying to break up with that false dichotomy, it's one or it's it's not one or the other, right? It's a it's a playful marriage, I think. Right, and you know, I can think back to an experience I know a, a superintendent in our region had all the teachers, you know, do this crazy rock paper scissors shoot battle, right? And at the end of it, you know, you had this finally out of you know 100 people, you had this grand winner. And at the end of it, she said, okay, what's the takeaway? And now people are thinking about, you know, okay, how does it connect to, you know, academics and stuff? And she said, you know, sometimes we have to do things just to have fun, right? Yep. Let's have fun together um, and have fun with the kids. So I am 
super grateful that we had this chat. Thank um, you. Thanks and, for the invitation. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And these are just kind of the highlights. I had some quick points. Again, if you go into our podcast, you check out your books, you know, on the topics we talked about for two minutes or three minutes at a time, you're going to have 30-minute podcast episodes. So you'll find it. So check it out. Where else can people kind of connect, find you? Um, um, so yeah. on my website, I'll spell it out, is ooeygooey.com, O-O-E-Y-G-O-O-E-Y. I am affectionately in some circles known as Lisa Murphy, the ooey gooey lady. Um, so honestly, if you Google ooey gooey or ooey gooey lady, you're going to you're going to find me. Um, I do have a strong social media presence. I'm ooey gooey lady on um, Instagram. My ooey gooey Facebook page that you can like, um, you know, just on Tuesday, two days ago, I put up six articles for people to broaden and deepen their own understanding of play and how that connects to their classroom. So, um, you know, I, I'm out there saying to be more playful, but I also see my role as one of assisting people and being connected to the resources that are going to assist them in, in doing that. So. That's one. how you can find me. Thank you. Good. Search her out. Uh, also, BOCES wise, uh, check out our pre-K CLC. Uh, we're going to be kind of continuing the work, the philosophy around play. I know there's a session December 5th and February 5th, and you can find more information at register.cabocies.org. Um, connect with us, our CA Today at CA Today um, Podcast. That's on Twitter. You can also go to catoday.caboces.org to access our show notes. Um, obviously, if you're listening to this, you've already connected to us on iTunes or Stitcher, um, but reach out to us. And if you have an idea for a podcast episode, we'd love to hear it. Lisa, thank you again. Thank you. And hope to uh, see everyone real soon. Take care.